Um, this morning, this is part two. Last week, we, we did our introduction, and uh, I'm just praying that many of you were blessed by that and got something from that. And we were focusing on the very beginning of the teaching given by Jesus at the start of Matthew 5. And Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we know that as what? The Sermon on the Mount, okay? And uh, the opening, we, we did the, um, the Beatitudes. Let me see if my, yeah. So the Beatitudes right at the start of Matthew 5. And just to recap, uh, we talked about Jesus and his followers uh, going up that mountainside at, at the Sea of Galilee to a place called the Horns of Hutton or the Horns of Hutton. Okay, and uh, it was kind of a, a natural amphitheater. And as uh, Rabbi Billy McGivney informed me last week, uh, the Sea of Galilee, is this right? Kind of would, sound, tra- sound travels better over water, is that right? Faster. So when Jesus was speaking there, basically everyone could hear him because of the water. So it wasn't by accident. And um, Jesus sits down there, as we know, the teaching position of a rabbi at that time. And he opens his mouth and he speaks. And we talked about that what comes out are words that were countercultural, both countercultural and very revolutionary. And last week, we took time to dig into the context and the conditions at this time in the Holy Land, okay? We learned that everything Jesus is about to say is of the utmost importance. Whenever a rabbi sat down to speak, what he was about to say was so, so important. And this is Jesus's kingdom manifesto, okay? He speaks concerning the kingdom character and kingdom conduct. And church, you know what? We would do well to listen to these words and do our best to understand them and then go and live them out. You know, as I've been studying for this, the word has really spoken to me. And I pray this morning as I share it with you, that it speaks to you too, and it'll help you live your life for the Lord. And here, right at the beginning of this sermon on the Mount, Jesus pronounces blessing on those who have found their way into his kingdom, not by works, not by their own merits, but by the grace of God, okay? And that is so important. It's by the grace of God. He pronounces these eight specific blessings on those who he considers his disciples, his followers, and his friends. We also spoke of some of the issues um, that we might have in, in trying to interpret and understand this teaching correctly, okay? And we highlighted three issues last week, just to go through them quickly. Context, translation, and foundation, Okay, firstly, church, we must hear and understand the words of Jesus in their original context. We must hear the words like those who sat on the mountainside that day so that we can get a true and pure understanding of what Jesus actually meant when he taught these wonderful things. We need to ask questions like, who were the hearers? Where did this happen? Why did Jesus use the words that he did? What did the people on the mountainside that day in Galilee hear when Jesus sat down to teach them? Okay, All of these are good questions, and we must take the time to answer them. And I tried to do that last week in our first study, and I'll try to do that again today. We talked about, secondly, the translation issue. You know, the fact that we have a translation, our Bibles, that's twice removed from the Aramaic, from the language that Jesus spoke to his followers on that day thousands of years ago. We don't have a written record in his language, but what we do have is a record in what we call common Greek, Koine Greek, okay? The language that was, most, that was um, used in most of the known world at this time. 
And from that Greek, then, we get our English translation, okay? So we've got the original, we've got the Greek, and then we've got the English, okay? We're twice removed. And it doesn't really matter which, one you, which translation you use. They are all twice removed from the words that Jesus originally spoke in his own day-to-day language, okay? And that can sometimes be a problem. So we must be sure to do the work of a good Bible student and get digging into the original languages and the context of the when, the why, the where, and the what. Are you all with me? Say yes. Good. You're all awake still. And thirdly, we talked about foundation. We looked at many verses. If you remember last week, we looked at loads of verses from the Old Testament, mostly from the prophet Isaiah and some from the book of Psalms, okay? And we read over and over, blessed is the man. Do you remember this? Blessed is he. Blessed are they. We started to see a pattern appearing that God calls his people blessed. Say blessed. God calls his people blessed. And all of these Old Testament scriptures were directed at his people, Israel. God called Israel blessed. And he still calls his people blessed. Can you say amen? Those who are citizens and members of his kingdom. Not a physical, earthly domain, but a spiritual, heavenly nation where God rules, where God reigns overall, and where Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen. And here on this mountainside in Galilee, we see Jesus carry on this very theme of blessedness into the New Testament and into this new covenant with God's people. Let's read Matthew 5, 1 to 12 together again as we dive into the text this morning. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Church, this is kingdom character. We talked about this last week, kingdom character. Church, this is the lifestyle of the kingdom in character and in conduct, okay? And these describe what we could call a complete character, okay? A complete character. Sorry, I love McKay's at the minute. Okay, I know what's wrong, but just go with me. A complete character. And all eight sayings, okay, all eight beatitudes, all eight blessings together form one complete character. In fact, I would go so far as to say that we could call it one blessing. Yes, there's eight sayings, but really it's one blessing and it's one complete character. Church, these things are the distinguishing marks of a disciple of Jesus Christ. And they come as a complete package, okay? Eight blessings all rolled into one. 
And the thing you will notice as we walk through the Beatitudes is that you can't have one without the others, okay? This is not pick a mix. You don't choose which one you have. You can't say, oh, I have that one, and Joanne has that one. I have this one. Billy has that one. No, we all have to have all of them, okay? It's one complete package. You can't pick one or two and leave the others, okay? Because Jesus is describing for us, in all of them together, someone who is a citizen of his kingdom. And that's important to get. Someone who God calls blessed, fortunate. Do you remember the word we used a lot last week? Happy. Say happy. You feel happy again, don't you? Happy. Don't you want smiling away there? Because why? Why are you happy? Because you are in his kingdom. You're already in it enjoying all of its benefits and all of its privileges. Church, the Beatitudes tell us who we are meant to be. In fact, what they do is point us to Jesus Christ and tell us that we are to live like him. We are to be like Christ, or we could say we are to be Christ-like in every area of our lives, but especially in those of character and our conduct. And here's what we can do with the Beatitudes as we walk through them. We can use them as, you all know what a litmus test is, don't you? A question that seeks to find the character of a potential candidate by measuring a single indicator. This is our litmus test. As we walk through the eight sayings of Jesus, I want you to test yourself against these characteristics and qualities. It can be a very sobering thing to do, I'm telling you. I've been doing it as, I'm, as I've been studying. I want you to be honest with yourself, real with yourself, and I want you to ask yourself, is there evidence of these things in my life? When I read these things, can I see them in myself, in my own life? Let's use it as a tool for discerning our spiritual state. Ask yourself, how does my life line up against the standards that Jesus is giving here? And I pray that as you do, you'll discover that you are in fact in the kingdom and not outside of it. I said last week, I'll say it again, the Beatitudes are all about contrast, contrast with a K. The contrast is between those who are in the kingdom and those who are outside of it, okay? The Beatitudes is all about contrast. And church, I want every single person here this morning to be in the kingdom, I want you all to be inside the kingdom. I don't want anyone to be left outside of its walls. And here's the way in, spiritual poverty. Spiritual, if you don't remember anything this morning, remember that, spiritual poverty. Because this is where it all starts. This is the the launch pad to receiving all of the blessing and the joy and the happiness and the blessedness that God has for you inside his kingdom. It starts with being poor. It starts with being a pauper. It starts with being a beggar. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They have nothing, yet gain everything. Say that with me. They have nothing, yet gain everything. Say it again. They have nothing, yet gain everything. Can you say it louder? They have nothing, yet gain everything. Every single other blessing that Jesus speaks on this day at the Sea of Galilee flows out from this one, okay? This is the starting point. This is the launch pad. 
if we can get this one right, we're off to a great start. Because each one flows into the next. There's a natural, maybe I should say a supernatural progression into the next proclamation from Jesus. Church, in, in these Beatitudes, there's a divine order. There are no accidents. And here's the good news within all of it. God helps us along. God helps us. He enables us. In fact, God is the only one that can produce these kingdom qualities in us. We cannot do it by ourselves. Please get that this morning. We cannot do it by ourselves. We can't do it with our own merits. We can't do it with our own efforts. And that is the good news. In fact, that is, this is the good news of the gospel. We can never meet God's standard with our own merits, our own efforts, and our own works. Even our own righteousness, the Bible tells us, is as a dirty and a filthy rag in his eyes. Church, we need his righteousness. We need his grace. We need his mercy. Salvation is not of works, lest any man or woman should boast. That's what Paul said. It comes only through grace alone, through faith alone, in who? In Christ alone. In Christ alone. By repentance, by confession, by submitting to the will of God and trusting in Jesus Christ alone and recognizing, church, that we have nothing to offer him. The truth is we all come to God spiritually bankrupt, okay? There's a lot of talk at the minute about the economy and about people's bank accounts. And well, do you know what? Spiritually, we come to God bankrupt. We have nothing to offer him. And that's where Jesus begins, the poor in spirit. And you know what? It is only by the Holy Spirit that we can see these qualities and characteristics in our lives as we serve the master. It is only God who is able to do this in us. But you know what? It starts with us recognizing and acknowledging something about ourselves. And unfortunately, we have to look inward and that's never a nice thing to do. The New Living Translation says, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need of him. Say it with me. They have nothing, yet gain everything. Oh, you've already forgotten it. Say it. They have nothing, yet gain everything. Last week I mentioned that for people on this day, as Jesus sat and taught them, all of these sayings and proclamations sounded familiar to their ears. And that's because Jesus was quoting from his Bible and from their Bible, what we call the Old Testament. Many of the people gathered on that day knew the word of God, especially those who were part of the religious elite, whether they be Pharisees or Sadducees or Zealots. What's that wee joke about there? Why do the Sadducees always look sad? Because they're sad, you see. Sorry. These all get it, eh? <laughs> So what the people heard wasn't new in a sense, but the application was new and it was revolutionary, especially to the ears of those who taught the word like the Pharisees and claimed to live by the word like the Sadducees. See, Jesus here was turning things on their heads and they couldn't believe what they were hearing. Jesus tells the crowds gathered, blessed or how happy or how fortunate are the poor in spirit. In Luke's version of the Beatitudes, he simply says, blessed are the poor. And of course, this has caused some debate about what Jesus is actually talking about here. 
Many have taught that Jesus is referencing those who are specifically materially poor, lacking in finance or wealth. But unfortunately, this interpretation doesn't fit well with what we read and understand in the passages that Jesus actually quotes from the prophet Isaiah. In the Greek, we have this word, tokos, okay, tokos, and it comes from the word meaning to crouch, and it carries the meaning of a beggar or of a pauper or of someone who is poor. It's someone who has been reduced to beggary, someone who is reduced, who is, sorry, destitute of wealth and of any influence, lowly, afflicted, helpless, and powerless, basically someone who is poor and needy. And you can understand from the meaning of this Greek word how we could get misled and misunderstand what Jesus here is trying to communicate. And that's why it's so important to understand the context and the foundation of what Jesus is saying. It's vital or we miss everything. And you know, it's true that the word poor, okay, in the Bible began its, its usage as a literal material need. The way we would kind of talk about someone who's poor, they're physically, or sorry, they're physically materially poor. But gradually, as we will see, it became to be used in terms of spiritual poverty. Okay, as you work your way through the Old Testament, it, it starts as poor, but it becomes spiritually poor. And what is it to be, to be in spiritual poverty? It's to have humble reliance and dependence on God. That's what it means. And that's precisely what Jesus is talking about on this day. Listen to Psalm 34, 4-6, just so you can see the foundation of the words that Jesus, that Jesus sorry, uses here. You know this, I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried out and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Amen. Isn't that a beautiful passage? This poor man in Psalm 34 is afflicted and unable to save himself. And this man then looks to God for salvation and recognizes at the same time that he has no claim on it and he has no right to it. This man cries out and what happens? The Lord hears him and saves him out of all his troubles. Then we come to the two passages that are the most important for understanding the words of Jesus here in this first proclamation. Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of of the contrite ones. And you can see the bit that I've underlined, contrite and humble spirit. This is an incredible verse from the word of God. And here Isaiah records for us that the high and lofty one, this one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, will dwell with the one who has a contrite and humble spirit. Isn't that good news, church? He will revive the spirit of the humble and revive the heart of of the contrite one. God is pleased to dwell with those people. This is wonderful news this morning. For those who are humble and contrite in heart, for those who are poor in spirit. Well, what is a contrite spirit? Church, it's a broken spirit. Contrite is to be broken. The Hebrew literally means to burst, okay? To burst, to break down. And what is a humble spirit? It's a lowly spirit. It comes from the root idea to sink into oneself or to depress. 
But more on that a wee bit later. The second passage from the prophet Isaiah, which is vital for our interpretation of this beatitude, is chapter 66. Where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made, and all those things exist, says the Lord. But listen, but on this one I will look. On him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. On him who is poor and of a contrite spirit. Did you hear that, church? On this one I will look. On this one I will fix my eyes. One who is poor and of a, and there it is again, that word, a contrite spirit. And one who trembles at my word. This word poor here in the Hebrew, oni, okay, comes from a root meaning depressed in mind or circumstances, afflicted, humble, lowly, needy, poor. And what was God saying here? He was saying, this is the person I will look upon, the one who is afflicted, the one who is humble, the one who is lowly, the one who is needy, the one who has a contrite, who has a broken and a crushed spirit, and the one who comes to me in true humility. Church, I want God to look on me. I want God to see me. I want him to fix his eyes on me. Does anybody want to see him? And I need to come to him as a, as a poor beggar, as a pauper, as one who has nothing to give, because in reality, I don't. And then God will look on me in my spiritual poverty, and that is exactly what Jesus is talking about here when he makes this proclamation at the Sea of Galilee. This is all about spiritual poverty. It is all about being spiritually poor, not physically, not, not materially, but spiritually poor. Church, this is about us recognizing our own spiritual bankruptcy in the presence of an almighty, righteous, and holy God. We need to firstly acknowledge how far we are from him and how incapable we are in ourselves and in our own merits and efforts to even get anywhere close to him in his kingdom. We're born so far away from him in rebellion and in sin and nothing we do of ourselves can help us. And this is where it all starts. It starts when we recognize our need of him that we are totally and completely incapable of doing anything to help ourselves. This is the launch pad that takes us into the rest of the blessing. This is the starting point for enjoyment and blessing and true happiness in the very kingdom of God. We get there by recognizing and acknowledging that we have nothing. In fact, we have less than nothing to offer God. Charles Spurgeon spoke these very profound words. Not what I have, but what I have not. It's the first point of contact between my soul and God. Not what I have, but what I have not. And we have nothing. And when we realize this sobering truth, this is the very point that we enter the kingdom of heaven. When we acknowledge that we need a savior, that we need rescued, and that we can't play any part in it because we are morally and we are spiritually bankrupt church and you know what that's when the joy comes the joy that's when the happiness comes say happy happy that's when God calls us blessed say blessed because now we are citizens of his kingdom 
We have passed from death to life. We have been translated from darkness into light. And now we get to enjoy all those benefits, all the privileges of being a citizen of the very kingdom of God. We get to be citizens of his kingdom, members of his kingdom, and we become ambassadors of Christ. And that's where I hand over to James tonight. That's what he's talking about, being ambassadors of Christ. And do you know the most wonderful truth in all of this, church? God took you just as you were. Just as you were. God took me just as I was. And he will take you. If you're not in his kingdom today, God will take you just as you are because you can't do anything to help yourself. No works or merits or efforts or trying or striving will get you anywhere near the gates of the kingdom of God. Only recognizing that you have nothing to offer in your spiritual poverty will allow God to shower his grace, his mercy and favor on you and enable you to become a citizen of his kingdom. Isn't this good news, church? And I know that most of you this morning are already there and I praise the Lord for that. We could do nothing, church, nothing, but he did it all, didn't he? He did it all. We brought nothing. We came empty-handed. It came with a, a basket with nothing in it. Absolutely nothing. But the Lord provided all that was needed. He provided everything. And now he calls you blessed. Blessed. You have inherited the kingdom of God. I love these translations of this wonderful beatitude. Listen to this. Oh, the happiness, say happiness, happiness. Oh, the happiness when you realize you can't do anything apart from God, then you are subject to his will. And that's what inheriting the kingdom means. You become subject to the will of God. You submit yourself and you subject yourself. You become his subject. And he desires that you are a subject in his kingdom who lives a life filled with kingdom character and with kingdom conduct. Say it with me. You have nothing, yet gain everything. Let's try it again. You have nothing, yet gain everything. Church, this is happy poverty. Have you ever heard of such a thing? Happy poverty. Fortunate poverty. It's a complete paradox. It's an oxymoron. It doesn't make any sense. But you know what? That's the kingdom of God. It's upside down. It's inside out. It's all, up, it's all around the wrong way. But that's the way God wants it. It's revolutionary. It's countercultural. It goes against the norm. It doesn't fit the norm. You see, the religious elite of the day thought they were already inside the kingdom. They thought they had made it. They thought they were done, dusted, got the, got the T-shirt, the awards, the medals, everything. They were there. They believed that their wealth and their riches and their status secured them a place in the kingdom of God, but they were so far from it. They'd missed it. You know the beautiful thing about the kingdom is? It was the unwanted, the undervalued, the prostitutes, the publicans, the sinners, not those who called themselves saints, who were entering the kingdom ahead of them. Church, be careful when you judge others. Be very careful when you look down on others. 
Don't ever assume to know who God will take into his kingdom and who he won't. Because he took me. He took Paul, and Paul called himself the chief of all sinners. Don't ever judge anyone. Don't look down on anyone. Because Jesus told the religious, we can become so religious and so full of ourselves, so full of our unrighteousness. Well, Jesus told the religious that the so-called sinners, in their eyes, were entering the kingdom ahead of them. Why? How was this possible? Well, church, the sad truth is that it's usually the poor, the lowly, the humble, who are the first to recognize their need of God and his free gift of salvation. You know, there's a reason why Jesus said it's difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And do you know what? He was so right. But here God has given all of us a level playing field. You can be rich or poor, God doesn't care about your background. He doesn't care whether you're wealthy or whether you're destitute. He doesn't, he doesn't care about any of those things. It has no say in your entrance into the kingdom. What God is looking for is spiritual poverty. He wants the poor in spirit, those who see that they have nothing in themselves to give and that they need a savior. Say it again with me. They have nothing, yet gain everything. Come to God with your nothing, and he will give you everything. You still might live your life with nothing materially, but see if you're in the kingdom, you're rich. Not right? Not right, Betty? You have everything, don't you? You might have nothing in the cupboards, but if you're in the kingdom, you've got everything. He will bless you more than you can ever imagine with a place in his kingdom. And there you will find true happiness, true joy, and true peace. There, God calls you most fortunate because you have inherited and become a subject of the kingdom. Come as a beggar, come as a pauper, and God will make you spiritually rich. It doesn't make any sense, but that's the way God designed it. And this is what Jesus was telling them on that day. The contemporary English version puts it like this. God blesses those people who only depend on him. They belong to the kingdom of God. Did you see that? Who only depend on him. They belong to the kingdom of God. And I love how the, how the literal Greek reads. I know I'm a full-on geek and I don't care. I love it. This is what it's, literally this is what the Greek says. Supremely blessed the beggar. He, she is royalty in the sky. There it is. You're royalty. You're all royalty in the sky. If you're a child of God, you are royalty and you are supremely blessed. Do you know you're blessed this morning? Do you know if you're in the kingdom, if you came to God in your spiritual poverty, you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven and God calls you blessed this morning? Say blessed. Say happy. Say fortunate. You're all of those things. Stand with me and say it again. They have nothing, yet gain everything. Say it one more time. They have nothing, yet gain everything. Church, thank you for your attention to the word this morning. James, why don't you come back? And we're just going to finish with some worship songs. And um, we'll have you out.